Human nature is perpetual. In most respects, it is the same today as the time of Caesar. So the principles of psychology are fixed and enduring. You will never need to unlearn what you learn about them. We learn, for instance, that curiosity is one of the strongest human incentives. We employed it whenever we can. Puffed wheat and puffed rice were made successful largely through curiosity. For them, we used headlines like, Food shot from guns. 125 million steam explosions caused in every kernel. These few foods were failures before that factor was discovered. We learned that people judge largely by price. They are not experts. In the British National Gallery is a painting which is announced in the catalog to have cost $750,000. Most people at first pass it by at a glance. Then later, they learn what the painting cost. They return and surround it. A department store advertised a $100 hat, and the floor could not hold the women who came to see it. We often employ this factor. Perhaps we are advertising a valuable formula. To merely say that would not be impressive. So we state as a fact that we paid $100,000 for that formula. That statement, when tried, has won a wealth of respect. Many have advertised, try my product for a week. If you don't like it, we'll return your money. Then someone conceived the idea of sending goods without any money down and saying, pay in a week if you like them. That proved many times as impressive. One great advertising man stated the difference this way. Two men came to see me, each offering me a horse. Both made equal claims. They were good horses. A child could drive them. One man said, try the horse for a week. If my claims are not true, come back for your money. The other man said, try the horse for a week. But then he added, come and pay me then. I naturally bought the second man's horse. An advertiser offered a set of books to businessmen. The advertising was unprofitable, so he consulted another expert. The ads were impressive. The offer seemed attractive. But, said the second man, let us add one little touch which I have found very effective. Let us offer to put the buyer's name in gold lettering on each book. That was done, and without another change in the ads, they sold some hundreds of thousands of books. Through some peculiar kink in human psychology, the names in gold gave much added value to the books. In the same way, it is found that an offer limited to a certain class of people is far more effective than a general offer. For instance, an offer limited to veterans of the war, or to members of a lodge, or to executives. Those who are entitled to any seeming advantage will go a long way not to lose that advantage. An advertiser suffered much from substitution. He said, look out for substitutes, be sure you buy this brand, etc., with no effect. These were selfish appeals. Then he said, try our rivals too, in his headlines. He invited comparisons and showed that he did not fear them. That corrected the situation. Buyers were careful to get the brand so conspicuously superior that its maker could court a trial of the rest. There is a great deal in mental impression. Submit five products exactly alike and five people may choose one of them. But point out in one some qualities to notice and everyone will find them. The five people then will all choose the same product. These are just some examples. There are endless phases to psychology. Some people know them by instinct. Many of them are taught by experience. But we learn most of them from others. 
When we see a winning method, we note it down for use when the occasion offers. These things are very important. An identical offer made in a different way may bring multiplied returns. That was an excerpt from the chapter on psychology of the book Scientific Advertising written by Claude Hopkins. So I wanted to cover this book um, because it, I thought it, was, it would be a good bonus episode to go with the the, the book, uh, the, the biography on Albert Lasker that I just did because Claude and Albert worked together for, I think, like 17 years. Claude Hopkins will sound familiar to, to it may sound familiar to, because back on Founders Number 170, I read his biography, My Life in Advertising. He is largely regarded as probably the, the greatest copywriter um, to ever live. And so I want to pull out this quote from David Ogilvie in his book, Ogilvie in Advertising. And he says, nobody should be allowed to have anything to do with advertising until he has read this book seven times. It has changed the course of my life. That is very high praise for a very short and very old book. So this book is 100 pages, maybe, and that's being very generous because <laughs> the, the, the chapters go by really fast. Um, it was first written, uh, the story goes that it was first written. Uh, Albert Lasker thought it was too valuable that he locked it away in his vault for 20 years. Uh, it was then released and quickly sold uh, a lot of copies since it's been released. I think it was released in the 1920s, 1923, if I'm not mistaken. It sold over 8 million copies. So let's jump right into the beginning of the book. Claude is talking about what is like what is this book? How did it come about? And every principle that he talks about in the book and the the few references he just gave us in the the in the chapter about the the unique weird results from human psychology, just how you twerk one little thing and the results can be vastly different. It, it, this none of this is theory. It comes from you're you're reading the words of a practitioner, somebody that sent, spent twelve hours a day, seven days a week, for decades learning the art of copywriting, of advertising, of sales. And so he says, some of these agencies and their hundreds of campaigns have tested and compared thousands of plans and ideas. All that he learned, he learned from trial and error. The results have been watched and recorded, so no lessons have been lost. Individuals may come and go, but they leave their records and ideas behind them. These become a guide to all who follow. That's a very simple sentence, but a very profound idea. If you think about it, if you pick up this book, right, and you're reading this book, you're having a one-sided conversation with a master of his craft that's been dead almost 100 years. So individuals may come and go, but they leave their records and ideas behind them. I'm holding the, the record of his ideas, of his career in my hand. These become a guide to all who follow. Nearly every selling question which arises in business is accurately answered by many experiences. And the way I interpret that sentence is what you're going through is not unique. People in the past have gone through the same situations. They've run countless different experiences. And most of those lessons are put down in a book. I'm paraphrasing Mark Andreessen on why he reads so many biographies. You know, there's, there's throughout history, it's thousands of years, been really smart people. They ran all these experiments. They've learned all these things. Somebody put them down in a book. We should probably pick up those books and read them, right? The compass of accurate knowledge directs the shortest, safest, cheapest course to any destination. He's giving you the why you would want to read it. We learn the principles and prove them by repeated tests. We compare one way with many others, backward and forward, and record the results. That's why this book is called Scientific Advertising. It's all about trial and error. I have an hypothesis. I test my assumption, and I record the records. Did, was that assumption accurate? No. Okay, let me do another test. Was it accurate? Yes. Okay, let's double down on that. When one method invariably proves the best, that method becomes a fixed principle. To reduce the cost of results, even 1% means much. So no guesswork is permitted. One must know what is best. And he gets to the main point, like why so many entrepreneurs 
and people building products, advertising services, like why is this important? And because our final conclusions are always based on cost per customer. So that was an important concept in Hopkins Day. It's just as important today. When you hear this concept that he's describing, most often you'll hear it as CAC, uh, customer acquisition cost. And the idea behind it is very simple. Like you should be constantly running experiments on how, how much does it cost you to get each customer? And the, 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 as you continue to run these experiments, that cost should go lower and lower. The lower it goes, the more profitable we become. And so that's why so many people read books, read this book, and, and use Hopkins principles because they're, they're the foundation on which you can build an extremely pro- uh, profitable business. And in some cases, he not only did he make himself wealthy through these principles, but he made countless other clients unbelievably wealthy through these principles. They become fundamentals for advertising in general. They are universally applies, applied. No wise advertiser will ever depart from these unvarying laws. It's very similar to what Ogilvy just said. It's like you, no one should have any, no one should get close to your advertising unless they've read this book seven times. We propose in this book to deal with those fundamentals, those universal principles, to teach only established techniques. The lack of those fundamentals has been the main trouble with advertising of the past. Each worker was a law to himself. So what they're saying there. Or what Claude is saying there is like the, the, everybody was running these experiments, but no one was actually comparing the effectiveness. We're collecting all this information and turning it into a scientific process as opposed to just, just throwing darts against the wall. All previous knowledge, all progress in the line was a closed book to him. So he's saying the advertising man at, at some point might be running these experiments. He might be doing failures and, 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 and when he could expedite and improve the effectiveness of his work if he would just learn from the experience, the past experience of others, right? It was like a man, and this is a perfect uh, like metaphor for that. It was like a man trying to build a modern train without first ascertaining what others had done. And then he, he talks about the importance of testing your assumptions, right? No one knows if your product is going to succeed or not. This section reminded me a, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, I read Sid Meier's uh, autobiography. And he is talking about like you know I was making these. Uh, he's a computer programmer, one of the first like made one of the first like computer programmers that made games. And he talks about like you know I was building all these flight simulators like they were selling, but I really wanted to make this comprehensive, gigantic, like a uh, st- giant strategy game about the history of human civilization. And conventional wisdom at the time was like, no, don't do that, Sid. Like just no one's gonna buy a strategy game. What are you talking about? Just stick to your your flight simulators, right? Because they're making money. And he went with his instinct. He's like, well, let me just build it and let me see what happens. Let me test, you know, my assumption. I like this game. Maybe other people will like it. That winds up selling over 51 million copies. Uh, winds up being his life's work. Um, and so this this paragraph reminded me when I read it of what I learned from Sid Meier. It is hard to measure human idiosyncrasies, the preferences and prejudices, the likes and dislikes that exist. We cannot say that a product will be popular, but we know how to sell it in the most effective way. The blind leading the blind is ridiculous. It is pitiful in a field with such vast possibilities. And so that little dig at the end, blind leading the blind, he's ta- he's compared throughout the book. He compares and contrasts. This is the way I go about my craft. This is the results I've gotten. And these are the people that that propose they think we're in the same industry. They think we're in the same genre, but we're really not because they don't know what we're what they're actually doing. And so there's a lot of that. Like he's saying, listen, advertising is a admirable field. It can grow larger if we can show results. Stop just guessing. Stop doing advertising just for the sake of advertising. Actually prove to your customers that it's effective. Now he gets into the main point, what we talked about on Albert Lasker. We talked about David Ogilvy. What is advertising? Advertising is salesmanship. Uh, in, their, in their days, it was self, salesmanship in print. 
It is a way to derive leverage for your business so you don't have to employ thousands of individual salespeople. So the note left myself is advertising is salesmanship leveraged. To properly understand advertising or to learn even its rudiments, one must start with the right conception. Advertising is salesmanship. Its principles are the principles of salesmanship. Therefore, every advertising question should be answered by the salesman's standards. Let us emphasize that point. The only purpose of advertising is to make sales. It is profitable or unprofitable according to its actual sales. Treat it as a salesman. Force it to justify itself. Figure its cost and result. Accept no excuses. Then you will not go wrong. The difference is only in degree. Advertising is multiplied salesmanship. It may appeal to thousands while the salesman talks to one. And so that's another illustration of the point that I made in the, the Lasker uh uh, podcast where he wrote a bunch of different ways. He found ways to, to leverage, to exploit leverage. One of them is the fact that he only dealt with a handful of clients. He built strong relationships with them. Uh, he wind up uh, having access to extremely large uh, advertising budgets. Uh, he gets a percentage of that. And he was able to increase the advertising budget because he was the f- first person to realize, hey, instead of just being a broker, why don't we actually do the creative aspect Show that our copywriting, our uh, combined our copywriting with the leverage that advertising in newspaper and magazines gives us, this will increase the amount of sales that our customers get. As they increase the amount of sales, they'll increase the advertising budget, and we'll make more. And so, in a sense, you can think of Albert Lasker as just straddling these two points of leverage and using them to build an enormous personal uh, fortune. A salesman's mistake may cost little. An advertiser's mistake may cost thousands times that much. Be cautious. A mediocre salesman may affect a small part of your trade. Mediocre mediocre advertising affects all of your trade. So there's a bunch going on this page. Uh, Do a small test before spending a large amount. Uh, Selling in person is valuable experience. Uh, So a lot of the the insights that door-to-door salesmen uh, would learn Claude applied that to uh, to advertising in print. Ogilvy also did this. He sold he sold door to door a bunch of like stove, like some kind of oven, um, and then used those insights for when he was building his own advertising firm. Uh, I'm still reading my note to you. Uh, right as if the per- if the person was in front of you, the more you tell, the more you sell. Okay, so let's see what's going on here. Many of the ablest men in advertising are graduate salesmen. The best we know have been house to house salespeople. They may know little of grammar, nothing of rhetoric but they know how to use words that convince. A fair answer to those questions avoids countless mistakes. But when one tries to show off, so their whole point is like, there's a lot of people in the industry that are trying to win awards or trying to entertain. He's like, no, no, we're all, we're all about sales. And so a lot of these insights uh, that we're applying, like when you when the person was going door to door trying to sell something, a vacuum cleaner, a stove, uh, a bunch of knives, whatever they were selling at the point, they weren't trying to entertain you. Like it wouldn't have worked. Like their their time is limited. Uh, they have to convince you to hand over some money, or they can't keep doing that. So Claude's point here is like, listen, think about treat it as if that person's that prospect is standing standing in front of you. And so if you think about it like that, it's like before I write this word or this sentence or this paragraph, would it help a salesman sell the goods? Would it help me sell them if I met a buyer in person? And so his point is, if you answer those questions. The correct, if you're able to answer those questions correctly, it avoids countless mistakes. And so stick to that. And he says, when one tries to show off or does things merely to please, uh, he, is, he is little likely to strike a chord which leads people to spend money. Then he continues this. Some people say, be very brief. People will read for little. Would you say that to a salesman? 
So this whole thing is just treat your ad as if you're on an individual basis, right? Would you say that to a salesman? With a prospect standing before him, would you confine him to any certain number of words? That would be an unthinkable handicap. So don't do it in your ads. So in advertising, the only readers we get are whom are people whom are subject interest. No one reads ads for amusement, long or short. Consider them as prospects standing before you, seeking information. Give them enough information to get action. So with countless questions, measure them by salesman standards, not by amusement standards. And this is something he repeats over and over again. This is one of the greatest advertising faults. Ad writers abandon their parts. They forget they are salesmen and try to be performers. Instead of sales, they seek applause. And so he goes back to this idea. It's like everything we do is based on an individual level, right? Um, this is something that Steve Jobs said. I was like, well, how are you, you know, Apple in the 70, late 70s, early 80s, is like, you're just a, uh, uh, you, you sell to consumers. How are you going to expand your market and sell to businesses? And Jobs is just like corporations are just collections of individuals. So just treat them as individuals. He applied that to the market for his computers. Hopkins is applying that to ad, to advertising. Don't think of people in the mass. That gives you a blurred view. Think of a typical individual who is likely to want what you sell. Then he talks about the importance of research. The advertising man studies the consumer. He tries to place himself in the position of the buyer. His success largely depends on doing that to the exclusion of everything else. Um, and then this is also something we've mentioned multiple times, uh, not only in the Lasker podcast, but also the podcast uh, with the Ogilvy podcast as well. It's this idea where you'll see these ads forever. They're written from the point of the perspective of a company. And people are self-interested. They're not, they don't care what, you're, what you made. They want to know how it affects them. And so he says, some ads are planned and written with a totally wrong conception. These, they are written to please the seller. The interests of the buyer are forgotten. One can never sell goods profitably in person or in print when that attitude exists. And so Claude's um, solution to this is you should be offering service. You should be telling, if you want somebody to give you money, you have to start with what, am I, what, am I, what service am I offering you? What am I doing for you, for you to give me your money? Not just, hey, buy my brand. No one cares about you, right? No one cares about the, the company or the product. They're worried, they have their own problems. Remember the people you address are selfish, as we all are. They care nothing about your interests or your profit. They seek service for themselves. This is why Henry Ford has that famous quote that money comes naturally as a result of service. First, you find a way to serve people. And then the second part is you find a way to increase the number of people you serve. Ignoring that fact is a, is a common mistake and costly mistake in advertising. Ads say, in effect, buy my brand. Give me the trade that you give to others. Let me have the money. This is not a popular appeal. The best ad, ads ask no one to buy. That is useless. The ads are based entirely on service. The good ads, he means. They offer wanted information. They cite advantages to users. Some of these ads see, may seem altru altruistic, but they are based on the knowledge of human nature. The writers know how people are led to buy. Here again is salesmanship. The good salesman does not merely cry a name. He doesn't say, buy my product. A brush maker, so he's giving an example of somebody going door to door trying to sell brushes, okay? And this is all ties to like the, psych, the, the human psychology that you present similar things in a slightly different way and you get varying different results. A brush maker has 2,000 door to door salespeople. Uh, he is enormously su successful uh, in, in, in an industry which would seem very difficult, okay? So how did he do it? And it would be if his men asked, their, asked the housewives to buy. So they knock on the door, hey, buy my brush. But they don't. 
They go to the door and say, I was sent here to give you a brush. I have samples here and I want you to take one of your choice. Okay, so they're giving away, they're saying, hey, I have a brush, been sent here, pick the one you want. The housewife is all smiles and attention. In picking the one brush, she sees several that she wants. She is anxious to reciprocate the gift. So the salesman gets an order. I think is the reciprocity principle. Munger talks about this. It's well known in this phenomenon in psychology. There's a famous book that a lot of entrepreneurs read. It's uh, the Psychology of Influences uh, of Influence by Robert Cialdini. I think is his name. But essentially, the, the phenomenon is playing out in this example. Uh, it's not, hey, knock on your door, buy a brush. They're going to slam the door. Maybe you get you know 10% of the customers you would otherwise. But saying, hey, I have a brush. No, no obligation. Pick the one you want. She picks the brush. Then she's like, oh, wait, like it's the natural instinct for humans. Like once we somebody does favor to reciprocate that favor. And that's why this phenomenon also you see in a, I think I don't know if it was if it was in uh, Chialdini's book that I learned this. I forgot where I heard this, but the, the, you see this in people asking for donations like um, the people at the airport. You'd see them or they used to be. Uh, they're in like they're like monks. They're in robes. It's uh, like Harry Krishna or something like that. What these people would do, and it wound up working marvelously. Somebody did like an in-depth research on how much money they were make, making hundreds of millions of dollars a year doing this. They would like hand somebody like a flower or something like that, uh, like a, or like a rose petal, whatever it was. I can't remember exactly what it was. They'd hand it to you first, then ask for a donation, and it you know like doubles or triples the effectiveness. Somebody that was doing this research winds up finding out. <laughs> Like they went up tracking what they were doing. So a person would be handed a flower, right? Uh, maybe they give them a, a buck or two or whatever it was. Then they'd walk around the corner and they'd throw the flower in the trash. The The guy or the person doing the, 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 the analysis of the sales method realized that the Harry Kirshners had it down so much that they knew that likely after they gave them the gift, they'd throw it away. So they would recycle the flowers by going through the trash and picking them back up and reusing them. Uh, so again, this is just something that, like a fundamental kink of human psychology that's used over and over again um, that works all the time. So that's why you see so many brands giving free samples, free trials, free demonstrations first before asking for money. And so he'll give us different examples of different products using the same principle. The maker of an electric sewing machine found advertising difficult. And he found advertising difficult because he's saying, hey, buy my machine. doesn't work. So on good advice, he ceased soliciting a purchase. He offered to send to any home a, mo uh, a, 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 a sewing machine for one week's use free of charge, no obligation, okay? With it would come a man to show how to operate it. Let us help you for a week without cost or obligation, said the ad. Such an offer was resistless. And about nine in 10 of the trials led to sales. So think about what he's saying. He's like the same exact... From the product maker's perspective, it's the same. You're, you're going after the same thing. I want to sell more of my product, right? I try, uh, I try option one, throw an ad. Look at this is a product. Look what it does for you. Buy my product, right? Uh, and then that limits. You know, you're not getting a lot of sales. Option two. Hey, I have such faith in my product. Let me serve you for a week without cost or obligation. And I wind up closing 90% of of the people that respond. This is why I said in, um, in in the previous podcast, like this stuff to me is just like indistinguishable from magic. So it says, these are all common principles of salesmanship. The most ignorant peddler applies them, yet the salesman in print very often forgets them. He talks about his interests. So again, Hopkins is going to repeat, uh, he's got a few main principles here, and he's going to repeat the same stuff over and over again so it gets to our thick skulls. 
People are self-interested. Don't forget this is what he's telling us. People do whatever they do to please themselves. Many fewer mistakes would be made in advertising if these facts were never forgotten. And now we see like why books like this would sell 8 million copies. Because when you study what works, you realize there's huge variance in results. And it's the difference between going bankrupt and, go and becoming wealthy. A man who was selling a $5 product. The replies, for, he, this is a direct, uh, like a mail order uh, product. The replies from his ad cost him 85 cents. Another man submitted an ad, which he thought was better. The replies went, started to cost $14.20. So if I sell something for five bucks and each cost of sale cost makes me uh, only cost me 85 cents, I can get wealthy if there's enough people that want that product, right? But if I'm selling something for five bucks and it costs $14 to get each client, I'm, I'm out of the game real fast. Another man submitted an ad, which for two years brought replies of an average of 41 cents each. So that's his also point where the main point is, hey, there's ads that work. Do not stop pulling them right before they work or before they, the, the, the effectiveness diminishes. And sometimes you can ads can run for a decade, two decades. And the way to think about that is the, the aphorism from Ogilvy, where he's like, listen, you're not advertising to a standing army. You're advertising to a moving parade now. But that doesn't mean when you find a new uh, an ad that works that you stop experimenting and trying to improve the effectiveness of your advertising, which is what Hopkins is telling us right here. Listen, this dude, this guy was making he's making good money because his ads, he's getting a customer for 85 cents and he's selling for five bucks. But then they did another test and they realized, hey, now each ad, excuse me, each customer is costing me half that much. Now it's not 85 cents, it's 41 cents. And this is where Hopkins ties it all together for us. And consider the difference on 200, on a quarter million replies per year in this guy's business. Well, he's saving half the cost on 250,000 replies a year. And he's going to talk to us about the, the, this huge variance in results. Some people were pay, paying for sales from two to 35 times what they needed to cost before the Hopkins started writing ads for them, right? They were paying two to 30. So my ad, his, what he's saying is like my writing was, they were paying uh, the people that they hired previously were charging them double to 35 times more than the effectiveness of my advertising. And what if they were making a profit at 35x, right? And now he found a way to, to, to reduce their cost by 35 times. It's insane. A study of mail order advertising reveals many things worth learning. If continued, you know that it pays. Study those ads with respect. It is proven advertising, not theoretical. It will not deceive you. The lessons it teaches are principles which wise men apply to all advertising. And so now he goes back to this idea where everybody tells you it has to be a short ad. He's like, no, we, our, our testing reveals the opposite. Mail order advertising tells a complete story if the purpose is to make an immediate sale. You see no limitations there on the amount of copy. The motto here is the more you tell, the more you sell. And it has never failed to be proven wrong in any test we know. And at this point in his career, he's done thousands, maybe tens of thousands of tests. So he goes back to this idea. You should be studying successful advertising. Ads. Look at the ad for a for the Mead Cycle Company. So they're selling bicycles. Um, these these ads have been running for many years. The ads don't change. Mr. Mead told the writer, meaning him, Hopkins. It's funny. He always he's always referencing the writer. It's like as a way to say himself. Mr. Mead told me that not for ten thousand dollars would he change a single word for for in his ads. For many years, he compared one ad with the other. And the ads you see today are the final results of those experiments. You may not like them. You may say they are unattractive, crowded, or hard to read. Anything you will. But the test of the but the test of results has proved 
that those ads are the best salesmen those lines have yet discovered, and they pay. And so that's another way to, for him to just pound into this or expound on this point that he makes over and over again. Like, you've got to test your assumptions. You cannot assume that you are correct. Just prove it. And he's like, the, the way to test assumptions is not around a table in an, in an office in a meeting. He's like, just run a test and then do it again. Uh, so says now he's now he's talking about the importance of headlines. And we're already over a third of way through about a third of way through the book. It's written very quickly. Like he does not. There's no like fluff in this book whatsoever. Uh, so it says um, the, the importance of headlines. Like if you can't get somebody's attention, the headline is the vehicle to get somebody's attention. Right. And you can't sell somebody that's just not paying attention to you. And so if you have a problem, the, the problem he's trying to solve is, listen, ads can be ignored. And the right headline is what solves this problem. People do not read ads for amusement. They don't read ads, which at a glance seem to offer nothing interesting to them. Always bear that fact in mind. People are hurried. The average person worth cultivating has too much to read. They skip three-fourths of the paper, which they are paying to get, newspapers. They are not going to read your business your business talk unless you make it worth their while and let the headline show it. So don't bury the lead, right? And so he's going to tell, like, the headline is the most important part. They write, the writer of this chapter, meaning me again, spends far more time on headlines than on writing the ad. He often spends hours on a single headline. Often scores of headlines are discarded before the right one is selected. The identical ad run with various headlines differs tremendously in, it, in its returns. It is not uncommon for a change in headlines to, to multiply returns by five or ten times over. So then he gets into more specifics. And one of his specifics is be specific. He's like, don't talk about, don't avoid platitudes. Don't use generalizations. They're so commonly used, like they have no meaning. Pick a freaking number. Don't don't say I'm the best in the world. Everybody knows this. And that's not true. Platitudes and, general, and generalities roll off the human understanding like water from a duck. They leave no impression whatsoever. To say best in the world, lowest price in existence, etc., is at best simply claiming the expected. And it also can lead people to not believe you. Uh, they lead readers to discount all the statements that you make. A man inclined to superlatives must expect that his every statement will be taken with some caution. But a man who makes a specific claim is either telling the truth or not. A definitive claim is usually accepted. Actual figures are not generally discounted. Specific facts, when stated, have their full weight and effect. The weight of an argument may often be multiplied by making it specific. That's the most important sentence in this chapter. The weight of an argument may often be multiplied by making it specific. A dealer may say our prices have been reduced without creating any impression at all. But when he says our prices have been reduced 25%, he gets the full value of his announcement. A mail order advertiser sold women's clothing. For years, he used the slogan, lowest price in America. His rivals all copied that. These claims became so common to every advertiser that they became commonplace and thus far not effective, right? Then, under able advice, he changed his statement to, our net profit is 3%. So he's saying lowest price in America doesn't work. Our net profit is 3%, a specific example. That was a definitive statement and it proved very impressive. No one could be expected to do business on less than 3%. The next year, the business made a sensational increase. So he's talking about there's a lot of these industries where everybody's advertising that the, the 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 competition is brutal and so you've got to use specific uh one way to stand out is using specific claims so he's talking about shaving soaps right shaving soaps have long been advertised abundant lather does not dry on the face acts quickly 
So okay, but everybody uses those claims, so they're they they're not effective. So a new a new entrant comes into the field. Uh, it says a new maker came into the field. He said multiplies itself in lather 250 times, softens your beard in one minute, maintains its creamy fullness for 10 minutes on your face. And his advertising was wildly successful. These are all specific claims in a sea of sameness, right? He's going to give us a bunch of examples. Makers of safety razors have long advertised quick shaves. And then one maker advertised a 78-second shave. He gets the business. Um, Use the world over is a very elastic claim. A lot of products say that. Then one advertiser said, my product is used by peoples of 52 nations. He gets the business. And so he wraps up this chapter here. The difference is vast. If a claim is worth making, make it in the most impressive way. So now he's going to talk about, he says, the headline of this chapter is tell your full story. And this is about the more you sell, the more you tell. It doesn't mean you go on and just make it 10,000 words if you can tell the full story in 2,000. The point is, like, you're not going to get their attention many times. So tell your full story. And if you can do that in 2,000 words, do it in 2,000 words. If you can do it 500, do it in 500. But don't do like, oh, I have 280 characters and then I'm done. Like, no, that's not. You're, you're, you're wasting your advertising money. When once you get a person's attention, then is the time to accomplish all you ever hope to do with him. Bring all your good arguments to bear. Cover every phase of your subject. One fact appeals to some, one to another. Omit anyone and a certain percentage will lose the fact which might convince. People are not apt to read successive advertisements. No more than you read a news item twice or a story twice. In one reading of an advertisement, one decides for or against a proposition. So present the reader when you once you get him every important claim you have this is why he he reduces everything he's saying here so the more you sell the more you tell the best advertisers do that gradually they accumulate a list of claims important enough to use and all those claims appear in every ad thereafter some advertisers go so far as to never change their ads this is what i just referenced earlier uh, some mail mail order ads ha- have been running year after year without diminishing a return diminishing returns. I think the example Ogilvy uses in his books is like, uh, you know, it's very common. Like when people get married, they they get a house, and so maybe your 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 client you're selling washing machines, right? And you you realize that newlyweds are a large aspect of that market. Well, guess what? People get married this year. They're going to get married next year, and they're going to marry ten years from now. Those people will probably want washing machines too. So don't change the ad. Is the the specific example? I'm pretty sure he used in his book. Uh, the constant returns come from getting new readers. In every ad, consider only new customers. People using your product are not reading your ads. They've already read and have decided. Any reader of your ad is interested. Else he would not. He or she would not be a reader. You are dealing with someone willing to listen. So do your level best. That reader, if you lose them now, may never again be a reader. Okay, so now this is really interesting. The way to think about what he's explaining to us here is sell painkillers, not vitamins. And the, this principle applies. These are notes I wrote to myself, by the way. This principle applies to which benefit you choose to highlight and how to make the market for the same product bigger. Costly mistakes are, me, are, being, are made by blindly following some ill-conceived idea. A product, for instant, instance, may prevent a disease. Prevention is not a popular subject, however much it should be. It's admirable, but people do not respond to it, is what he's telling us. People will do much to cure trouble, but people in general will do little to prevent it. This has been proved by many disappointments. Sell painkillers, not vitamins. And he talks about using this concept in what you choose to show, too. A toothpaste may prevent may tend to prevent decay. 
It may also beautify teeth. Tests will show that the latter appeal, meaning I have, a, if you use my product, you'll have beautiful teeth, right? Is waged as many times as strong as the former, meaning that it's preventing decay. The most successful toothpaste advertiser never features tooth troubles in his headlines. They show the desired effect. Beautiful, bright, sparkling white teeth. A soap may tend to cure eczema. It may at the same time improve complexion. So this is what I mean about you have to be very careful about choosing the benefit that you're promising to your customer because you may be artificially limiting the, the amount of customers you can get. So you may have prevented or excuse me, you may have invented a cure for eczema. But it's also, as a byproduct of that, improves your complexion. Do not advertise it as a cure for eczema. The eczema claim may appeal to one in a hundred, while the beauty claims would appeal to nearly all. To even mention the eczema claims may, might destroy the beauty claims. Then he goes into what it takes to get really good at what, what he's doing. And he's like, listen, you got to put in. Most people are not willing to put in the work. There's no substitute for the hard work and the time and the effort. You're going to have to read and say, he talks about like before you can advertise a product, you got to really study and, and, and understand it. Sometimes this process can take weeks. Sometimes it can take months. Let me use an example of Ogilvy. He, had, he, he got the Rolls Royce account. And I think it was like three weeks of reading thousands of pages. And he came across this, this random line in, uh, I think it was like an engineering handbook for Rolls Royce, like an internal handbook. And it said, at 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise in the news Rolls Royce comes from the electric clock. That He used that as, a, as his headline. Um, and it came from research. So this is what Hopkins is, is saying the same thing. An ad writer, to have any chance of success, must gain full information on a subject. The library of an ad agency should have books on every product that calls for research. A painstaking advertising man will often read for weeks on some problem which comes up. Perhaps in many volumes, he will find few facts to use, but some, but in some, one fact may be the keynote of success, which is the Rolls Royce uh, uh, Ogilvy example, right? Gene, now this is this is cr crazy because I feel like I've been quoting Izzy Sharp a lot since I learned about what he said, and so this is Hopkins. Genius is the art of taking pains. The advertising man who spares the midnight oil will never get very far. Izzy. Is he sharp as he's building Four Seasons, right? One of the premier luxury brands the world's ever seen. He said, excellence is often the capacity of taking pains. So that's what Izzy said. What Claude said, said genius is the art of taking pains. And he wraps up saying, this is not for the lazy. The uninformed would be staggered to know the amount of work involved in a single ad. Weeks of work sometimes. The ad seems so simple. And it must be simple to appeal to simple people. But behind that ad may lie reams of data, volumes of information, and months of research. This is no lazy man's field. Uh, skipping ahead, he also got a way where he could just, we talked about this, this uh, idea. You got business are just collections of people. You start with the individual. And he just has a way to just express ideas in you know, one or two sentences. We must consider individuals. We cannot go after thousands of men until we learn how to win one. Uh, this is the idea that a demo, a sample, it's just the best sales technique that's ever been invented. There's not, there's nothing better uh, way to sell your product. He used the example of the, the guy with the horse or the, the electric typewriter, whatever that machine was, sewing machine rather. And so there's an entire chapter. It's like you got, use samples. It's just, it, it, it multiplies the effectiveness of your ads. It pays for itself many times over. People don't do this because they're like, oh, I'm giving away my product or... 
you know, how do I afford to pay for it? He's like, you afford to pay for it in, in the, the sales that, that uh, happen in the future as a result of them using your product. The product itself should be its own best salesman. Not the product alone, but the product plus a mental impression and atmosphere which you place around it. Samples are of prime importance. However expensive, they usually form the cheapest selling method. Samples serve numerous valuable purposes. They enable one to use the word free in your ads. That, and why is that important? Because if you can use the word free, that multiplies readers. The samples pay for themselves in multiplying the readers of your ads. So his point is, if you have two identical products or two identical ads for the same product, one headline talks about you get something free, the other headline doesn't, way more people are going to read the one that says free. And so therefore, the demo pays for itself because it increases the effectiveness. How many people actually read the ad, the more people read it, the more people buy. But his point is you don't give just like you don't just mass mail samples of your your product to just random people. They have to ask for it. And He's like, you, you're cheapening it if you just if it just shows up on the door without any kind of um, like introduction to the client, and so you should introduce your product in a favorable favorable way using the demo as a like almost like a leverage salesperson, right? So you introduce your product in a favorable way, and you do that through storytelling. And the story obviously comes from your ad. He says the product is cheapened if it is not introduced in a favorable way. Many advertisers do not understand this. They supply thousands of samples to dealers to be handed out as they will. You should give samples to interested people only. They should ask for it, right? Give them only to people who exhibit that interest by some effort. Give them only to people whom you have told your story. Now he goes into the importance of testing. We're towards the end of the book already. This is, it just goes by really, really quick. Like this book you can read definitely in a day, you know, maybe definitely over a weekend easily, um, depending on how many notes, how much notes and uh, time you have. But this is just, the summary is the world is full of surprises and always has been and always will be. There are many surprises in advertising. A project you will laugh at may make a great success. A project you are sure of may fall down, all because tastes differ so much. None of us know enough people's desires to get an average viewpoint. So the solution is to test. And the test sometimes proves, hey, I saved you money because I thought it was going to be successful and I'm not. And in other cases, you get a surprisingly massive response that you didn't expect. Uh, we let the thousand, and he talks about like, cap your downside, right? Don't just do, don't, don't have an idea. And then like, I'm putting my entire advertising budget on this idea, cap your downside and then test. Uh, he repeats this because many spend a lot without testing first and they go broke. So he's saying, instead of going before I go nationwide, I'll test my ad maybe in a, a few different markets and I'll cap it at a couple thousand dollars. So if that doesn't work out, um, usually I get most of the money back, if not all the money back. But if it doesn't work out, I, I say, you know, I spent a couple thousand instead of a couple millions and then putting the company in jeopardy. We let the thousands decide what the millions will do. We make a small venture and watch the cost and the result. When we learn what a thousand customers cost, we know almost exactly what a million will cost. When we learn what they buy, we know what, when we know what the thousands buy, we will know what the millions will buy. From the few thousands, we learn what the millions will do. Um, so he talks about the people testing. He is playing on the safe side of a hundred to one shot. If the product is successful, it may it may make him millions. If he's mistaken about it, the loss is trifle. So I kind of just ran over my own point there, or Claude's point there, rather. Uh, these are facts we desire to emphasize and spread. So he's like, stop doing. I've seen a bunch of people do a bunch of dumb shit. Don't do. Don't repeat their mistakes. These people go out of business. There's no reason for that. Is was what he's telling us. All of our largest accounts are now built in this way from very small beginnings. Uh, reiterates his point, even if you have a great campaign, that you, you never stop testing. 
ever. Costs can always go lower, so you got to keep running these tests. Uh, we try test campaigns to we do test campaigns to try out new methods of on already successful advertising. Thus, we constantly seek better methods without interrupting already proven plans. If in five years for one food advertiser we tried over fifty separate tests, every little while we found an improvement. So the result of our advertising constantly grew. At the end of five years, we found the best plan of all. It reduced our cost of selling by seventy five percent. So you already had an effective ad campaign. Now you found something that you weren't expecting and you did this through testing, through trial and error. It has now reduced your cost by 75%. Congratulations, you're wealthy. Uh, that is, it was four times more effective than the best plan used before. Try out plan after plan after plan to constantly reduce the cost. Um, so then he's talking here. You should be advertising the result. They don't. People do not buy products. They buy solutions. Show health, not sickness. Don't show the wrinkles you propose to remove, but the face as it will appear. Your customers know all about wrinkles. Show pretty teeth, not bad teeth. Talk of gum coming good conditions, not conditions that exist. We are all attracted by sunshine, beauty, happiness, health, and success. Point the way to them, not the way out of the opposite. Advertise the result is a way to think about what he's telling us here. He's going to give another example of how you stand out. So you got a bunch of people all trying to go after the same customers with similar products you can differentiate just the way you up by proposing your solution. And this is the sales technique of the century. This is what Estee Lauder, Lauder built her massive business empire out of. Last time I looked, you know, she's been dead for quite a while. She started that business in her 40s. I think it's somewhere in the, the founder's 130, somewhere in there where I did her autobi- read her autobiography. She's completely slept on as a uh, overlooked as an entrepreneur. If you could reincarnate her today, bring her back, she'd be kicking almost every other entrepreneur's ass. She was extremely, extremely gifted. Last time I looked, uh, her the company was doing something like $18 billion in revenue, some, some, some ridiculous number like that, right? But she talked about one of the keys to her success is the gift with purchase, which she referenced, the reason I referenced this is in her autobiography, which is extremely easy to read, by the way, and full of useful information. Uh, she says that was the sales technique of the century. It's what the cornerstone she built her her empire off of. She did not give away free samples. You bought something and then she gave you an extra gift and that caused you coming back and back and endured this goodwill that she cultivated over the entire lifetime of that customer. Um, and so this is a, a way to stand out where we see somebody using that idea a couple decades before she did, right? Uh, a mail order advertiser offered a catalog. The inquirer might send out for three or four similar catalogs. Okay, so it's I have a catalog, but there's three or four other companies that have a catalog too. He had that competition. He so he had competition making a sale. So he wrote a letter when he sent his catalog and enclosed a personal card. So you have not purchased anything yet, right? You've inquired. You say you want my catalog. I'm going to send you the catalog, just like my three or four competitors do. But the, I'm going to differentiate myself. I'm going to stand out by giving you a personal card, and this is what I write. You are a new customer, and we want to make sure you are welcome. So when you send your order, please enclose this card. The writer wants to wants to see that you get a gift with the order, something you can keep. That is Estee Lauder's sales technique of the century. That is a gift with purchase is what he's saying. What And so now Hopkins is analyzing the psychology behind this simple little card that magnified this person's sales and had him outcompete people that were very similar to him. The offer aroused curiosity. It gave preference to his catalog. Without some compelling reason for ordering elsewhere, uh, the customer would send the order to him. 
the gift paid for itself several times over by bringing larger sales per catalog. Now, that's wild. Check this out. The gift paid for itself several times over by bringing larger sales per catalog. In, in her, excuse me, my voice is going, uh, in her autobiography, she talks about, she's like, I'm not, she reduced her advertising budget and because they had a limited amount of money at the beginning of the company, right? So she reduces her advertising budget and she says, instead of spending money on advertising, let's spend money on more product, manufacturing more products that we can give away. And what she found was that the gift with purchase, spending every dollar that she spent on, on giving away stuff as opposed to advertising, uh, like it outperformed the money spent on advertising. And so that's, they, these people would constantly be coming back. Um, and so I just thought that was like a very interesting idea. It's like, okay, I'm going to limit how much I'm spending on advertising and I'm just going to cultivate and my already existing customer base and they're going to grow because now they come back, but they tell other people about the products I have uh, for sale. And so Hopkins talks about, you know, the, the, the return on that investment, the gift paid. If you think, think about it, not as a gift, but as an investment, or even maybe you think about it as marketing or advertising, whatever you want to put on it, the gift paid, the marketing paid, the advertising paid for itself several times over by bringing larger sales per catalog. And then he closes with this chapter called good business. And he's just talking about like the stuff we've talked about here it's just the very beginning days. It's only going to grow more important with time. A rapid stream ran, and this is a very fascinating uh, analogy that really, in my mind, crystallized what he's telling us. A rapid stream, stream ran by my boyhood home. The stream turned a wooden wheel and the wheel ran a mill. Under that primitive method, all but a fraction of the stream's potential went to waste. Then someone applied scientific methods to the stream put in a turbine and, dynam and dynamos. Now, with no more water, no more power, it runs a large manufacturing plant. We think of that stream when we see wasted advertising power, and we see it everywhere. Hundreds of examples, enormous potentials, millions of circulation used to turn a mill wheel, while others use that same power with manifold effect. And that is just a perfect analogy to end it. Your advertising, the way you market to customers, you can you can be the the same stream, right? You can have a wooden wheel, and you can run a mill, or you can have a term turbine and dynamos, and you can run a manufacturing plant. That sentence, while others use that same power with manifold effect. And that is where I'll leave it. It's I think it's a no-brainer to buy this book. You can buy the paperback version. If you, I think it's less than ten dollars. It's insane. But um, if you buy, if you're interested in reading his autobiography, the My Life in Advertising, if you go on Amazon and search for the Kindle version, you can find a version of his autobiography where you get this scientific advertising book for free as well. But in either case, whether you read the autobiography or you, uh, I would read this book no matter what. I do think the autobiography is also interesting because it talks about the lessons that are in this book applied to his actual life. And I'm pretty sure this founder is 170 if you haven't gone back to listen to that. I will leave a link in the show notes if you want to support the podcast at the same time and buy the book. Uh, use that link. That is 207 books down, 1,000 to go, and I'll talk to you again soon.